Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Before today's tale, before our retelling of horrible and tragic events, I need to make note of this occasion, but I'll keep it brief so don't click off quite yet. This is a special episode. In fact, it is our 10th episode, and I'm so happy you've all stuck around this long. The messages and discussions we've all had on Facebook or Twitter have enriched this experience for me. Some of you have reached out sharing your own personal anecdotes regarding cases I've covered that happened in your hometown. Some of you have reached out telling me you know the victim. From those who have reached out sharing their own personal anecdotes regarding cases I've covered that happened in their small town, or those who knew the victims, to amateur detectives reaching out with new possible avenues of investigation, I've enjoyed every single conversation. So thank you. To those of you I haven't had the pleasure of talking to yet, In case you don't already know, we have a Facebook group that's small but growing fast. It's old people's social media, I know, but indulge me. Come join the conversation by searching Tales by Cole podcast discussion group on Facebook. I know a lot of us are anxious and worried about what the aftermath of the events taking place right now might be. A lot of us can't leave our homes or are choosing to self-isolate, and I thank you for listening to your healthcare providers and professionals. Without each and every single one of us doing our part to ease the impact of COVID-19, the outcome will be much worse than it needs to be. So keep it up, creeps. As another special thank you, I've reached out to a fellow podcaster who I think you'd love. So stick around to the very end of the episode for a special teaser from the podcast, Tapes from the Dark Side. Now back to our regularly scheduled tale. You are standing on your tippy toes, eyes closed, grasping the shelf in your basement with your left hand as you reach and tap your fingers searchingly looking for the box. Dust cascades down on you, sending your allergies into a frenzy. You know the size of the box. You know its finish, the feel of the matte print beneath your fingers. If only you could find it. Your fingers are searching for the crisp edges amongst the stack of board games up there, stacked and forgotten most of the year. And then you feel it. Your middle finger pulls at the box, pulling it closer to the edge so you can find purchase. Grab it and claim the prize of your quest. Just a little bit more. Aha! Your hand finally closes around the corner and just in time too. Your calves are burning and you're panting from the exertion of stretching and reaching for so long. You pull it in tiny jarring movements trying to shake the boxes that rest on top of it off, inch by inch. 
You begin to get impatient, though, and foolishly pull in one sharp motion, yanking out the box. And all the boxes on top of that one as they fall around you, making a racket. You look up the basement stairs, waiting for the inevitable parental yell, but it doesn't come. Thank God. Turning to me, clutching the box, you have a grin on your face. It's mischievous and exciting. Slowly unfurling your arms, you show me what you spent all this time and energy on. A Ouija board. A Ouija board? You cajole me by bumping me with the box and looking into my eyes give me a long, exasperated, come on. Without waiting for my answer, you leap up the creepy basement stairs, taking them two at a time and shutting the lights off before I get a chance to follow. Given the choice between your pitch black basement or a session with a Ouija board, I guess I'll take the Ouija board. It's fake anyways, I think to myself, racing up the stairs behind you. We get to your room and I sit on the carpeted floor as you close the door and close the blinds. You jump onto the floor, crossing your legs, placing the sealed Ouija board between us, like Pandora's box, the mystery of it emanating out and anxiety-inducing tendrils of promised terror, like some Lovecraftian horror. And what we are staring at is just the doorway. Well past dinner time, it's dimly lit in your room, the blinds letting in nothing but a yellow warm hypnotic light that makes the pinkish brown carpet look as if we're sitting on a sea of blood. You place your hands on either side of the lid and it reluctantly slides off, revealing beneath it the small wooden board with letters and symbols burnt and sealed into its surface. You lift the planchette, the odd-shaped teardrop, our method of communication, and place it over your eye and jokingly look around the room. Nope, no spirits yet, you laughingly say. We place our fingers on the planchette, now resting on the board, and you tell me the rules. The rules to open the doorway, the rules to communicating with the dead, and the rules to close the doorway. We rotate the planchette around the board three times. You say some words, and then settling into the tension of the board, we start. Is anyone there? The planchette slowly and skittishly moves to yes. You try to hide the smile on your face. You bite it down and clear your throat to hide it, but I see. I know you're only messing with me. Were you murdered? I ask, playing along. The planchette doesn't move. I look at you, and you're looking back at me, tossing a shrug. I guess they weren't murdered. Who are you? You ask. M. E. Me? I shake my head. Clearly you haven't thought this out, making it up on the spot, trying to find the story as we go along. You let out a little laugh, looking at me and shaking your head. Who is me? I ask. The plastic planchette feels colder now beneath my fingers. I am uncomfortable, but I don't believe you still. I don't believe any of this. You, on the other hand, love this. Your eyes are wide, your mouth closed shut. 
You look up at me as we resign ourselves to another unanswered question. But then our fingers are being dragged along the board, slowly at first. Z. U. Z. U. Then my fingers are nearly jerked off the planchette as you yank it back and forth. Z. U. Z. U. That's so dumb. Stop messing around, you say worriedly. Me? You stop. I'm not doing anything, I reply. Z. U. Z. U. Faster and faster it goes back and forth, spelling out Zuzu over and over. The room feels stifling hot, but my fingers are icy cold. You stare at me now, fear in your eyes. Tears collecting at the corners. The skin on your face is flush. And then you exhale. And we both see your breath like an ashy plume, vomiting and spilling forth from your lips. We jump up in unison, kicking the board to the corner and run from the room yelling, It's not real. It's not real. It's not real. Sound familiar? Whether or not you believe in the supernatural, everyone has had an experience that shook their conviction and skepticism. A moment when the veil between reality and horrifying fantasy pulls back or thins momentarily. Where phantom footsteps stalk through the home or growl and voices can be heard from dark corners of the room. Like most, you've probably reasoned them away. I know I have. Many times. But for Arnie Johnson and the Glatzel family, the distinction between what they knew to be true and what they feared became, before their very eyes, inexplicably mingled. Was it mass hysteria due to the satanic panic that threatened suburbia? Or were demons real? If they were, could they turn anyone into a murderous monster? In the early 80s, in the town of Brookfield, Connecticut, they found the answers to those questions. During the summer of 1980, 11-year-old David Glatzel was helping his sister Debbie and her fiancé Arnie Johnson clean up a reno property they were preparing to move into. Arnie and Debbie were working together when David appeared from somewhere else on the property and claimed he had been approached by an old man who told David Arnie and Debbie would be harmed if they moved into the property and then shoved David to the ground. But Arnie and Debbie didn't pay much mind to this. Perhaps it was a bored little brother looking for attention. There certainly hadn't been an old man on the property, and there was no reason to think this single moment would devolve into the madness that was soon to follow. Later that evening, after Arnie and Debbie took David back to his mother's house, and in the following days, the old man returned. David claimed to continue to see the old man, stalking and skulking, coming to him and speaking awful things. Except, this time it was more sinister and foreboding as the old man whispered to him and spoke to him with animalistic features and pitch-black eyes. And that's when the night terrors began. I cannot truly begin to describe night terrors to someone who hasn't had them before. 
but I'll try. Imagine while you're dreaming that your world is placed on top of a large chessboard. The white and black squares showing through the opaque reality that while you were awake was solid colors and shapes. The black squares cast thick shadows across the white squares from a light source you can't find. The roof of this world is nothing but a void. There is no sun. There is no moon. No lamps or streetlights. Perhaps the chessboard itself illuminates your surroundings. Like most dreams, it's confusing. But you don't notice that yet. You're unsettled and uncomfortable. You might have a sense of a couch being in front of you, but in your mind you're climbing on one of the squares of the chessboard. Between the square pillars there is perhaps a growling hissing noise and the rumbling of a large beast stomping around between the pillars of the board searching for you. You start to panic and run. Your heart is racing and like a shepherd's ladder, the trembling and growling and hissing just gets louder and louder. But you never see what's chasing you. You panic more and more. You're now screaming. You feel the carpet beneath your feet as you run around the house. But all you're focusing on is traversing the obstacle course of your night terror. Until eventually you wake up. After your parents have awoken, startled, chased you around the house and tried to hold you tight. To stop you from hurting yourself unknowingly. The chessboard disappears as your world becomes solid again and slowly the memory becomes an abstract concept. This was my experience with night terrors, and this is exactly what David began to experience. Not the chessboard or my own demon, but a world and monsters completely his own. And it was only just starting. David claimed he had been hunted by a dark force, which he called a demon. Arnie and Debbie became increasingly worried about David and decided not to move into the rental property they had been working on. Instead, they moved in with the Glatzel family. The situation in the Glatzel family home was quickly becoming more worrisome as David began to show what they considered to be classic signs of possession. David was hearing voices. He had superhuman-like strength violent behavior that was out of character and strange marks appearing with no reasonable explanation on his body. David also claimed that the demon was clawing at the door at night, trying to get to him, leaving what the family saw and recorded as deep gashes in the wooden door and frame. Arnie and the Glatzels began watching David in shifts as he slept, or while he suffered through the night, awake like them, but twisted in fits of convulsion and agony. They were worried what the young boy might do to himself or others. Eventually, as the family became worn down from their night shifts and constant stress and had exhausted all their options, they called the local Catholic priest to come to the home to possibly offer a spiritual solution. They weren't so sure David's claims were the fabrications of an overactive imagination anymore, and were willing to try playing by the rules of David's claims. The Catholic priest came and blessed the house, which the family was starting to feel was now evil and possibly the source of their recent misfortune. 
David's visions became more frequent and violent, not only appearing as night terrors or nightmares any longer, but also occupying the young man's mind in the daytime as well. Twelve days after the first so-called demonic event, the Glatzels contacted self-proclaimed demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren, hoping for any help they could get. Ed and Lorraine Warren came to the Glatzel home shortly after, where Lorraine immediately sensed a black mist swirling and convulsing around David, a clear indication to her that a demon was present. She claimed to see invisible hands clutching onto David, claiming him and choking him. In her report of the events, David growled and hissed, speaking to her in unnatural satanic voices, reciting biblical passages and verses from Milton's Paradise Lost. Lorraine and Ed came to the conclusion that David was under satanic attack, being possessed by multiple demons, as many as 42. Due to the prognosis from the Warrens, David was then subjected to three minor rites of exorcism to try and rid him of his otherworldly suffering, during which Lorraine recounted David levitated, stopped breathing for extended periods of time, and even foretold the future by warning of the coming murder. During one of the fitful exorcisms, Arnie, in a rage, speaking directly to the forces assaulting David, demanded the demon take him instead. Despite the pleas, David's possession continued, but lessened over time. And eventually, Arnie and Debbie had to continue moving forward in their life as things slowly got better, and finally moved out of the Glatzel home. What would it take for you to believe? Would you need to be told by your pastor or priest? Would you need to see it firsthand? Would you need to see a family member slowly become unrecognizable, their personality rotting from the inside out? This is exactly the scenario the Glatzels found themselves in. Once completely skeptical, now they found themselves with priests and demonologists trying to exorcise demons from the young member of their family. They were at war with something they had not believed in. They were suspending their disbelief, watching the effects right before their very eyes, worried that they'd never have David back, that instead he would be claimed by a legion of demons and twisted and sickened forever. Or perhaps they were just buying into a scam, a play to exploit their fears and David's anguish. As David Glatzel's demonic nightmare seemed to lessen in severity, it was just beginning for Arnie Johnson, who had just pleaded with a supposed demon to enter him instead. And eventually, Arnie started displaying similar symptoms to Debbie's 11-year-old brother, David. Arnie's mood began to sour. Nightmares began to bloom while he slept. He started to experience paranormal attacks, and the once loving and docile Arnie started to become violent and angry. Arnie Johnson claimed a demon took control of his body while he was driving and took control of his hands while they were on the wheel, forcing Arnie to drive headfirst into a tree. Arnie later recounted his final lucid encounter with the demon. 
he was walking around the rental property and came across an old well. The stones were coming loose and the wood that held the pulley was dank and rotting. The New England woods surrounding it were bare-boned as winter had claimed the leaves and brush as its yearly tithe to bring the snow and cold with which to rebirth the lands. There at that well, Arnie supposedly came face to face with a demon, a demon who in fact supposedly lived in the well. The moment Arnie Johnson believed the demon possessed him, it's as simple as meeting the demonic gaze with his own. And Arnie Johnson knew he was being possessed the second he met the gaze of the demon, locking eyes. On February 16th, 1981, Arnie Johnson called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Service, and along with his sister Wanda and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary and Alan Bono, the couple's landlord and Debbie's boss, met Debbie at the kennel where she worked as a dog groomer. Alan Bono took the group for lunch at a local bar where he began to drink and drink and drink some more until he was clearly heavily intoxicated. After the group had finished their lunch, Debbie took the girls to get pizza, but returned shortly feeling anxious and anticipating trouble between Alan and Arnie. Wanda later recounted to police that when they returned from pizza, Alan was angry and drunk. Debbie quickly urged everyone out of the room, and it was at that point Alan Bono grabbed Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary and refused to let go. Arnie Johnson ordered Alan to let go of Mary, and he did. Mary, visibly upset by what had just happened, ran to the car. As Debbie tried to get between Arnie and Alan, who were arguing and getting more and more aggressive to one another. Wanda, Arnie's sister, tried to pull Arnie away from the argument, but he started to growl. A low, guttural, animal-like growl that bellowed from the pit of his stomach. Reaching inside his pocket, he pulled out a five-inch pocket knife, and with it, began stabbing and hacking at Alan Bono. Several hours later, Alan passed away from the gruesome wounds, including one that extended from his hip to the bottom of his heart. Police quickly took Arnie into custody, just three kilometers from the place of the murder. This was in fact the first murder in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. What makes a man a murderer? What could take a normally loving and docile person and fill them with such immense rage that they take the life of another, if not some otherworldly influence. Had a demon wormed its way into his brain, eating at his sensibilities and rational thought. Not long ago, the idea that Arnie would become a murderer was unthinkable to those who knew him, but now he had. In broad daylight, brutalized and murdered another man with a five-inch blade. Or perhaps Arnie always had this rage. It wasn't a demon at all, perhaps, but a dam waiting to burst. The cracks caused by each day, each interaction, each frustration, rippling through the concrete, weakening his inhibitions. During the trial, Arnie's lawyer, Martin Manella, given the subsequent events, took a unique and troublesome approach in his defense, entering a plea of not guilty due to demonic possession, 
and claimed that Arnie Johnson killed Alan Bono not out of rage or murderous intent, but due to the unseen forces of a demon possessing his soul and compelling him to murder. The trial became known as the Devil Made Me Do It case. A media blitz soon surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens whose agents promised that lectures, a book, and even a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. But despite the catchy headlines, due to no objective way to prove it or scientific-based evidence supporting his claim, Judge Callahan dismissed the defense and Arnie entered into a plea of self-defense instead. The jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981, to first-degree manslaughter. Arnie was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, but due to good behavior was out and a free man in less than five. Despite your belief in the paranormal, I hope you were able to suspend your disbelief, even for a moment to try and empathize with the Glatzel family, to feel the family-wide panic and fear they felt. But I won't be unreasonable. I won't ask you to believe if you don't. But maybe just contemplate for a second that there are shadows that hang heavy in this world, hiding things we don't have science yet to explain. David Glatzel has since never publicly confirmed that any of this actually happened to him. But Carl Glatzel, his older brother, spoke openly against the book The Devil in Connecticut that was written by Gerald Brittle with help from Lorraine Warren during its republishing in 2006. Carl has claimed it is all a complete lie and the entire story about demons is purely a fabrication and that Gerald Brittle and the Warrens exploited his family and his brother David's mental illness for personal and financial gain. Gerald Brittle subsequently stated that he had spent over a hundred hours interviewing the family, and his book was based on a 100% true story, as claimed by the Glatzels themselves in the interviews. And Lorraine Warren, the demonologist they had contacted to help David, claimed that all six priests involved in the exorcism were all in agreement that David was in fact possessed at the time. And I think this is a pretty fitting end to the story. Whether or not you believe the entirety of this story, the conflict between Gerald, Lorraine, and Carl is oddly poetic. Carl, like your rational mind, saw the cynicism in the handling of David and the case by the Warrens. Lorraine, like your willingness and openness to belief, believed in what she saw regardless of the explanation. And Jared Brittle, like all of us, just loves a good old tale of madness and murder. Hey creeps, the world of true crime podcasts is a sea of an ending intrigue and mystery. Just when you think you've run out of quality content by talented storytellers, another one appears. I know a lot of you are at home with your schedules upended, and I'd like to introduce you to one of my true crime podcast friends, Tapes from the Dark Side. A deep dive into one single case mixed with 80s horror synth nostalgia, this podcast is perfect for binging while you wait for the next episode of Tales by Cole. You can find this podcast by searching 
Tapes from the Dark Side, wherever you consume podcasts. Now enjoy the teaser. Tapes from the Dark Side contains descriptions of violence and sexuality. Listener discretion is advised. The search for a missing Colorado teen who vanished from his father's home during a court-ordered visit. Loved by his family, by his friends, everybody. He's just the sweet kid every mom dreams of having. You were the last person to have seen your son before he disappeared. Well, and I don't believe that. What do you believe? I believe that the postal worker saw Dylan later that afternoon. Dylan had found some pretty disturbing pictures of Mark. The pictures were, quote, disgusting. Him dressed in women's clothing and wearing a diaper and, um, and, you know. Eating his feces. Yes. I think everyone has a bit of a fascination with the dark side. I myself have always loved the dark side as well. I think it's something that everyone secretly longs for and wants. You're his father. How could you do this to him? Elaine, I don't I, I don't know where Dylan is. I haven't had anything to do with this. I don't I know that's a lie. On Monday, November 19, 2012, Dylan Redwine, a 13-year-old boy, went missing in La Plata County, Colorado during a Thanksgiving visit to see his father. Dylan's parents were divorced and his mother Elaine had primary custody of both Dylan and his older brother Corey. Elaine immediately suspected her husband, Mark Redwine, of foul play. From the numerous interviews Elaine has given to the press, which we will later hear, she openly accuses Mark of either having hidden Dylan somewhere or possibly hurt him. This is where this case gets bizarre. Not just a little bizarre. I've been a true crime fan for nearly my entire life, and this is one of the single strangest cases I've ever heard. I remember hearing about this case for the first time almost two years ago. Initially, I wasn't convinced it was a real story. Yet when I started digging, each new twisted fact I discovered became more grist for the mill, fuel for the fire of my search to find every piece of information I could. The desire to glimpse inside the peculiar mind of Mark Redwine became something of a personal obsession. You have been listening to a clip from episode one of Tapes from the Dark Side. My name is TZ and I am the host and creator. Thank you to Cole for letting us play a promo on the show today. We would love to have you come and check us out. If you enjoyed this little portion, then I think you would enjoy our show. Our entire first season is the story of the disappearance of Dylan Redwine. Just start at the beginning so you know what's going on. We are available now on all major platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, 
Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you again to Cole, and maybe we will see you at Tapes from the Dark Side. <laughs>